Hey there, Conquerors. This is the Conquering Columbus podcast, where we bring you the stories of everyone who is conquering their field here in our great city, from business and entrepreneurship to science, medicine, athletics, and more. As usual, we want to take a quick moment to thank some of our sponsors here on the show. And our first sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio, one of our sponsors, Social Ventures. They offer resources, programs, and accelerators on social enterprise, and they act as a primary network for social enterprise activity in central Ohio. You can learn more at socialventurescbus.com. That's socialventurescbus.com. And our next sponsor is FMX. FMX is a computerized maintenance management system that helps organizations accelerate their operational success. And FMX enables you to streamline processes, increase asset productivity, and turn actionable insights into meaningful results. If you'd like to learn more, check them out at their website, gofmx.com. That's G-O-F-M-X.com. And our last sponsor is the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is a local nonprofit that's committed to helping their partners build upon their strengths. They turn visions of what if into sustainable resources for the community. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Mr. Michael Triplett joining us, and Michael is president of Carmen Partners, a life science ventures and innovation advisory firm. Michael is the co-founder, president, and CEO of Armidus Bio LLC, a gene and cell therapy company based here in Columbus. He is also co-founder, president, and initial CEO of Claramedics Biosciences, Inc., a startup infectious disease company spun out of nationwide children's hospitals, pursuing novel therapeutics and vaccines for the treatment and prevention of chronic and recurrent bacterial infections. Michael co-founded and served as president and CEO of Myonexus Therapeutics, a clinical stage gene therapy company developing first ever treatments for limb girdle, muscu- limb girdle muscular dystrophies that Sarepta Therapeutics acquired for a little over $225 million in April of 2019. In addition to his biotech entrepreneurial efforts, Michael is currently leading an Innovate Ohio gene and cell therapy work group for Ohio Lieutenant Governor John Houston with the mission to pre- with the mission to propose gene and cell therapy economic development strategies for the state of Ohio. We are excited to have Michael on today to discuss his journey and everything he's got going on. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Michael. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And one of the first places that we always like to start with these 
is just talk a little bit about life before today, everything leading up to now, any previous roles, school, kind of all the highlights that stand out to you that brought you to where you are. And I'm sure there's a lot to unpack there. So take some time if you need it. It could, it could take a few minutes. No, I appreciate that. So I get the, I get this question often, and I often I start with my background. I'm a first-generation college graduate, born and raised East Liverpool, Ohio, which, for those who don't know, is on the river about 38 miles from Pittsburgh. It's on the tri-state of Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. And it's, it's a quintessential community that has suffered immensely from the from the the globalization and deindustrialization of the US and that experience shaped a lot of my passion moving forward for innovation which led me to entrepreneurship and and venture capital East Liverpool was like many many places like Middletown Ohio or Mansfield Ohio uh, Youngstown etc that afforded many people upward mobility when they went to work in the factories. So my family, my grandfather and his, his siblings and, and friends all moved from Northern Kentucky up to the Pittsburgh area during the Great Depression because the steel factories and, and facilities were still running and they were able to earn a living. And that sort of hard scrabble, tough sort of street sort of environment brought a lot of people, but it provided a lot of, brought a people into the area, but it brought a lot of opportunity for people as well. And, and for me, that, that background and that community shaped a lot of who I am today. And I can talk for hours about that. So you're growing up in that environment and then the college days come and you probably have this kind of pivotal choice. Do you stick around? Do you find the, uh, kind of blue collar way of making it or do you move on to college? So what, what pushed you in the collegiate direction? It was really no choice for me. My, my parents, particularly my father from day one, even though he went to the factory and he was a labor leader, uh, every day from the time I can remember, it was, you're going to college. And he's, he spent, and my mother spent, they spent a lot of time with me as a kid. So they invested in, in me heavily. And I had a passion for, for science and particularly math. And, and that led me down the path of trying to discover what, or what and how or how do I use those skills. And it led me to a couple of high school teachers that were really seminal in my sort of evolution, a chemistry teacher and then a math teacher and also a physics teacher put two and two together for me and, and sort of pointed me toward chemical engineering. And ultimately, I ended up at Ohio State to, to pursue that. So you're studying chemical engineering, um, you get through your degree, do you spend four or five years? I did undergrad, four years, went to Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. And then I came back after working for P&G for about two and a half, three years to, to Ohio State, non-traditionally, to get my PhD. What were you doing at Procter & Gamble? I was leading raw material development for baby care. So I was responsible for working with companies like 3M, who's in the news today with they're in 95 masks because they are a massive plastics, non-woven filter company. We were using them to, to build diapers and materials for diapers. And at that time, I was in my early to mid-20s, early 20s, and no kids and diapers were not all that motivating to me. So that led me back to uh, Ohio State to get my PhD. Actually, Procter & Gamble had a pharmaceutical business that they recently, they, they sold in the last decade for several billion dollars. But I wanted to get into that pharma side 
and P&G made it very clear that without an advanced degree, I wouldn't be able to do research and development, which is where I wanted to go at the time. And they advised me that pursuing a graduate degree was the appropriate way to get to where I wanted to go. The jump from master's to PhD is fairly significant, though. So usually, um, at least from my experience, the people who go back for PhDs are more academia focused and they could see themselves in that long term, not so much the business side. Did you have long term business aspirations when you were making that choice? No, I was, again, coming from the background, I was pretty naive to sort of the career paths. My, my motivation growing up was economic security. So I achieved that pretty quickly when I got, when I earned my bachelor's from Ohio State, worked at Procter & Gamble, which is a phenomenal company. People retire out of Procter & Gamble with huge retirements. In fact, when I was there, one of the, it was a legendary story. One of, the, one of the janitors retired as a millionaire from working at Procter & Gamble out of high school or if they graduated from high school on the west side of Cincinnati. Uh, but had worked at P&G for 40-some 40, 40 years. So that was, that was my initial motivation. But when, when I got to P&G, that became a very hollow motivation. Diapers were not motivating. There was so much more. I wanted to give and contribute. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to do something. I wanted to make an impact. And it led me into the, the pharmaceutical space. And given that background of growing up in, at the time that I did, in the place that I did, I was, I really didn't understand when I was graduating with my PhD, you know, I'm sort of bouncing around here, but it, it makes sense. When I graduated with my PhD or even in college at any point, I really didn't understand the options in front of me, given, given that family history, my own personal experience. And I had to sort of learn it experientially, but I knew I was always motivated to make a real impact. I wanted to have a real applied impact in people's lives. And I knew from growing up, in the 1980s, 1990s, when the steel industry collapsed, the socioeconomic devastation that that created, I wanted to avoid that. So I, even as a teenager, I started to try to study, why does that happen? How does that happen? How do you avoid that? Well, the answer became pretty clear. You needed to be on the cutting edge. You need to stay ahead of what becomes common. You, so I have a, it's not, my, it's not a unique phrase, but I, I tell people all the time, the future belongs to those who create, create the future or invent the future. So I have always wanted to be on the cutting edge. So if you tie that to economics, you command a premium return on investment if you are creating the iPhone, if you're creating Microsoft Office, if you're creating whatever the latest AI, or if you're creating the COVID-19 vaccine, Moderna or whomever creates COVID-19, they will be rewarded significantly. And not only will the investors and the company be rewarded, but the communities in which they operate will be rewarded and will be healthy as well because they capture a disproportionate share of those proceeds. So that's a long way of saying that I wanted to be very applied in what I did. So I was, I was recruited as I was completing my PhD out of Ohio State by academic universities or institutions like Carnegie Mellon, a very elite research engineering uh, school. I went over and took, so they recruited me. I took a, a faculty interview appointment. It's the only one I took. A half a day at Carnegie Mellon, which was smaller than my high school, like one one thousandth the size of Ohio State. And talking to the people as brilliant as they were, professors who were on TV, always in the Wall Street Journal or whatever, they were so theoretical. It was so far from where I wanted to go. 
I canceled the rest of my faculty interview appointments at that point in time, said, I'm not doing that. I want to make a real impact, a real difference in people's lives. And I joined a Patel spin-out, uh, Ventera Pharmaceuticals, a respiratory therapeutics company that Patel had spun out from King Avenue. And it was a, here in Watermark, down the road from here. And I joined as pharmaceutical R&D director or leader for, for that group. And that was my first taste of venture capital and venture funded companies. And, and it clicked, that intersection of innovation, entrepreneurship, and venture capital. And I knew that's where I wanted to be. So what was that initial experience like outside of just, you know, that clicking and knowing, hey, this is what I want to do and I really enjoy this. What was, what was it about that experience that really called to you? A few different things. One, it was, it was a combination of the ability to provide a therapeutic, the potential to provide a therapeutic intervention that did not exist to help people. It was, it was a very clear line of path to make an impact in a positive way on people's health. Combined with you were, you were inventing new technology, you were on the bleeding edge of science and engineering, which appealed to me. And then thirdly, it has a little bit of, it has an edge to it. You're living, you're living on the edge of, you don't know if the company's going to be here in three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months, whatever. And that part was surprising to me coming from my background, that I'd be attracted to that. I always thought I'd be attracted to the big corporate safe environment because that was always sort of what was missing growing up in that blue-collar community at the time that the factories were closing and you were, we were having massive job losses and kids would come to school one day and next day they were in South Carolina or Texas or wherever because they had to move. And I was really drawn to that that energy level and that intersection of, of those factors. So how long do you stay with that team? I was there about three years. The company failed. And even though, like, even though, although most, most ventures do fail, uh, and don't let, ever, but don't let anybody tell you otherwise, if you, if you bat three out of 10 or 300, you're a Hall of Famer in venture, venture capital as an entrepreneur or an investor. I was I was recruited into Patel to to manage the integration of that technology, but you know that was that's when I really really fell in love with the space and the intersection of of capital, uh, venture, entrepreneurship, and and big technology. Was that that was that at that point in time? And then where do you transition to from there? After you stay till the company fails, and then you did you see that coming? Did you find another jump point? So Battelle absorbed the company back because they had spun it out. Battelle absorbed the assets back into Battelle. And I was recruited into Battelle. I managed the integration of the technology inside Battelle in the national labs. Many people don't know Battelle manages several Department of Energy national labs, including Oak Ridge National Lab, Lawrence Livermore, and others, all heavily integrated into alternative energy and, and weapons research and energy research. And so at Battelle, I... I became involved in leading innovation and strategy for the health and life sciences business, which again put me on, given the nature of the business of Battelle, I was on the cutting edge of whether it's neuromodulation, Battelle reanimating limbs, connecting brain waves to devices that can move, that can translate those signals in the brain to movement when somebody's had a nerve injury, for example. That's really cool technology, really, really motivating. And then we were also, Patel was heavily involved in biodefense and 
therapeutics research as well. So it's not surprising to me that Battelle is in the news today for rolling out this decontamination unit, right? It's, it's right within their wheelhouse of what they do. So it was at Battelle, I was heavily involved in a number of health and life sciences, innovation initiatives and, and, and investments. I was interested in leaving at that point in time to run my own venture and make a migration into or, uh, or move into venture capital directly. And it was Alex Fisher of the Columbus Partnership at, who he and I had connected at Battelle when he was there before his role at the partnership. Alex connected me to an opportunity in Columbus to start as chief operating officer of an early stage life sciences company. And long story short, I joined that company. And that's how I launched my career, my most recent career into entrepreneurship and, and venture directly. So making that leap and, you know, leaving like an organization like Patel, you've had experience though already at smaller venture backed firms. So when you go into that leadership role, what are the what are the things you're thinking about as you enter and how is it different? What were the things that surprised you? Good, good question. And my experience up to that point had been academic and big company other than the middle manager role at the previous venture. So I didn't have a real line of sight onto the into the dynamics of investors, you know, really how close how close you are to running out of cash. You're living every month or six weeks or six months, whatever it is, and, and always thinking about value inflection and, and when to raise capital. So there was that aspect of the stress and just living and really owning, right? Taking responsibility for owning the fact that you need to, to hit your milestones or you're laying off everybody in the company and living with that and owning that, taking that leadership responsibility. You guys know from your backgrounds, from a leadership and, and accountability standpoint, there's a gravity that comes with that. So you, you assume that. You theoretically understand that, but when, it, when it's truly yours, there's a different weight to it, right? It weighs on you. The big dynamic that I did not appreciate going into an early stage company or a small company was the importance of the team dynamic. In a large organization, a bad attitude or a bad actor largely can the immune system, quote unquote immune system of that big company, the bureaucracy, will sort of dampen out that person or you can sort of move them off to the side and not deal with them. But when you have a team of five to 10, that personality, that individual is a real issue. So those those dynamics, getting that team right is absolutely critical. So it was much more akin to athletics than what I had experienced working for Procter & Gamble or Patel corporately. So you could tolerate somebody in a meeting every once in a while. It's like, okay, fine. If you didn't have to report to them or whatever, it's like, okay, just sort of everybody figured out how to triangulate them and sort of minimize their impact. But in a small organization, if somebody's not doing their job or they're being disruptive or undermining the leadership, it's really a challenge. You've got to deal with it head on quickly. So when you jump onto that COO role, how many people are on the team? And then what did, what did the scaling phases look like as you went along? So the team probably had, in, in early stage companies, team is a combination of employees and a whole lot of consultants and contractors. So team is very nebulous uh, as far as the number the numbers there. But the team probably there was, give or take, ballpark, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 on any given day. And 
some some interesting dynamics there, but it was it was a productive team. The team the company is still still executing and having a lot of progress these days. That company I think will ultimately be very successful. They have breakthrough status on their medical device technology. They they have some positive news coming out on pharmaceutical side here here shortly, which is good. But ultimately, I was looking for a different opportunity than what that company permitted and what really I owed. I joined that not as the founder, and I couldn't design that organization and the culture the way I wanted. And perhaps it's the engineer, maybe it's, maybe it's the control nature of my sort of background, personality, training, whatever. I wanted to build an organization from ground up, and that's what led me to my own nexus and building out that organization from ground up and partnering with the world-class research team at Nationwide Children's Hospital, particularly Louise Rodino Claypack and Jerry Mandel. The two are um, just the best of the best in the world and in, in their roles, in my opinion. And MyoNexus was the company that focused on gene therapy for limb girdle muscular dystrophies, right? So that's a pretty specific condition. It's very specific. Is that something that you came across or was it something that was spun out of the hospital? Yeah. Where had that come to be? So I would like to take technical credit for that, but I can take no technical credit for the work that under under you know, underpinned MyoNexus. I can take credit for assembling the strategy around it, organizing the team, and then driving it forward in collaboration with, with the team. But a lot of people don't know that Nationwide Children's Hospital in particular, but supported largely by the talent and the research enterprise at Ohio State as well, they are world's leaders. They're, they're, I mean, they are top of the world in neuromuscular gene therapy, gene replacement therapy research. And Across gene therapy, broadly speaking, they're probably top three or five in the world, and that's unquestioned. When I go to Boston, when I go to New York, you go to San Francisco, you go to London, people know it. It's the equivalent of the Ohio State football team, maybe these days the wrestling program. But when you say you're from Columbus and gene therapy, they rattle off X, Y, and Z people. They rattle off this company, that company, this program, that program. It is, these are the best of the best. And we have had a, a habit of recruiting five-star talent into, into the gene therapy program at Nationwide Children's Hospital, built largely by Dr. Jerry Mendel, who was chair of neurology at Ohio State for a number of years. And over $10 billion worth of, of market values has been realized in the last two to three years based on innovations here in Columbus in neuromuscular gene therapy. Hey there, Conkers. We want to take a quick moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Studio 301. Kyle and his team have helped us redesign our website, taking the podcast in a new direction that we truly love. And we have some incredible guests here on the show. And Studio 301 has given us a website that reflects the caliber of the people that join us. And the Studio 301 team can help you with everything from brand strategy and redesigns to market research, videography, social media overhauls, and a whole lot more. You can go check them out at studio301.org. That's studio301.org. Unpack, if you don't mind, what gene therapy is for people listening who don't know, and then I'd be interested to know what your company and team was doing that was different than, than what was already out there. Yeah, good, good question. So gene replacement therapy, the analogy I use is it's like adding a generator to your house as a backup power source. So 
classically speaking, in, in monogenic recessive diseases. So parents each contribute two defective copies of a gene. The body in muscular dystrophy, for example, does not produce a protein that the muscle cells require to be healthy and build muscle and sustain muscle. So in children that have two copies of these genes, so they have no functional protein, so their muscle cells die beginning seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years of age. They end up in a wheelchair typically, depending on which form of muscular dystrophy, in their teen years, and they often die from cardiopulmonary failure because of heart muscle fails late 20s, 30s. So what gene replacement therapy does is it, based on the three of us sitting in the room here, we have proper that proper protein. We have the proper genes. So they can study our cells and identify the proper protein. They have, the researchers have been able to, to re-engineer and reproduce that, the DNA sequence and the code for that proper protein. So they take viral particles, insert the transgene or the proper gene that's been designed, identified and designed into that viral particle. They inject it into the body. The viruses do what they do, and we're living this every day right now with our social distancing. They penetrate our cells and replicate and produce those proteins. In this case, that viral particle delivers the corrective copy of the protein, gets into the muscle cell. The muscle cell produces that protein. And even though it's not an endogenous or native protein, it looks like one. So the muscle uses it just like it would be a regular homegrown protein. So then restoring muscle function. So and it's, the analogy is it's like a generator, power generator on your home. When you lose your power, it kicks on. Your home uses it just like normal. And in terms of what's different, Josh, because I think you asked that one too, there's so many genetic dystrophies and diseases mm -hmm. and a lot of, so one of the biggest challenges that people face if they have a very specific, uh, a specific genetic, I'm not, I'm missing the term here, genetic disease or like they're missing a specific protein is like, there might not be that many people affected by that particular genetic, uh, genetic, like lack of ge genetic material. I'm completely spacing out here, but it's very hard sometimes to get a cure for that because there's not a lot of people who have it. So it doesn't have as much of research a back case in it or data data behind it or yeah that's that's a good point so most of these are often rare disease or ultra rare disease where you have a few thousand patients globally and in some cases some of the rare diseases that nationwide children's is working on there there are 100 or 200 patients worldwide in fact i was i was contacted a few weeks ago by a parent he's an amazon engineer out of seattle his son was born and diagnosed with a a certain neuromuscular disorder, only nine known, known patients in the world, nine. So given that, there's not an economic incentive for large pharmaceutical companies to conduct hundreds of millions of dollars worth of research on that. So what has happened is that foundations, largely parents or concerned family members and groups of people, start foundations and this is why the gentleman from Amazon was connected to me. He started an organization raising money to, to try to find a cure for nine patients in the world. 
and gene therapy. The programs behind MyoNexus, we had five gene therapy programs, all targeting different limb girdle muscular dystrophies that were driven by five different genetic defects. So they required specific, quote unquote, rifle shot or sniper shot gene therapy approaches. Most of those had been funded by parents who were wealthy enough to do it or foundations that were formed and raised money like Pelotonia, in this case for muscular dystrophy, to fund research at Nationwide Children's Hospital to advance these therapies along the way. In fact, the first two investors in MyoNexus were two parents from San Francisco. One, a serial tech entrepreneur whose son has muscular dystrophy, one type of one girdle muscular dystrophy, and the other, a, a partner at a high-profile law firm, former federal prosecutor, both highly capable individuals but have the resources and the connections, know a lot of people. So they've raised a lot of money in San Francisco. They were both referred to Columbus by Stanford because of the expertise and the leadership of Nationwide Children's in Ohio State. The hospital connected me to them, and that's how we formed the, the basis around the original investment in, in MyoNexus. But often it's because of the rare disease, it's, it's parents, it's siblings, it's families funding funding the, the research that drives these programs forward. So MyoNexus, you guys have these five gene therapies that um, maybe, I don't know if it's an ignorant way to describe it, but almost like your products, your five products as a company, maybe to some extent, and your, your primarily role was to figure out the strategy of deploying those in a commercial level? Absolutely. So given the fact that there are only a few thousand patients per indication here or per therapy that was being developed by Louise and her team at Nationwide Children's. It's hard for Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, the pharmaceutical industry to invest in a therapeutic that's a one-time one-time administration ther- theoretically, unlike a, a, a diabetes drug or a, cardio- or a um, blood pressure pill that you take daily for life. If this is a one-time treatment. It's hard for them to make the economic case for that. The hospital, I think, our insight was if we bundled, this is the way, better way to say it, if we bundled these five assets together, we created a pipeline or a portfolio of assets that had sales and marketing synergy and technology development synergy. So we could, deri- we could drive if economies of scale, both on the development and then on the commercial side post-launch that might be attractive, that would be attractive, our theory was, our thesis was, would be attractive to pharmaceutical companies. And my co-founder and I, Bruce Halperin, we, we took an option on the assets from Nationwide Children's Hospital and we went out and talked to venture capitalists and we talked to pharmaceutical companies about specifically that thesis. If we bundled these five together and created a portfolio of products for you to sell to the same neurologist that Stanford Medical or Nationwide Children's Hospital, would that be accretive to your bottom line? And the answer came back overwhelmingly, yes. And that was the critical insight from the business side that we had. So we needed to combine these assets into a portfolio. And it became, once we did that, 
raising the capital was not a challenge and finding the part pharmaceutical interest was not a challenge either. Right. And, and eventually you go on to be acquired by Sarepta. So that process, I mean, that's the, you know, that's the goal of venture capital with, you know, these types of, of projects, but you know, it sounds like you didn't have any trouble finding someone to buy the company. Was there any hiccups along that process or did things go pretty smoothly? How much time do we have? <laughs> oh, were there hiccups? Absolutely. There were, there are always challenges in any relationship, any, any deal. It's complicated. One of the challenges was we entered into an option agreement with, with Sarepta. So we had formed MyoNexus, technically formed the company in February of 2017. May of 2018, we do the option agreement with Sarepta. They gave us $60 million up front for us to take ourselves off the market to give them an exclusive option to acquire us. And we use that 60 million to fund our research and development. And then we would hit milestones. They paid us $45 million along the way to repay us for the costs we were incurring. The challenge was in that environment. We had a high-flying Boston biotech company, publicly traded, multi-billion dollar market cap, huge expectations, a lot of a lot of interest from the street, CNBC, et cetera, always focusing on Sarepta. Had a little startup company in between, MyoNexus, and then you had a massive research, an academic research medical center in Nationwide Children's on the other end. And we were trying to navigate the relationships back here with the hospital and with Sarepta, who was growing significantly, but was very commercially focused and you talk about cultural differences. And we were a team of six at our peak at MyoNexus trying to hold together and service both sides of that relationship. So we felt like we were in a vice the whole time. You had to be agile. A lot of people talk about agility. And you had to be a really good read of dynamics and people. And I always challenged the team and myself to... Before I go into an interaction, before I went into a conversation, let me think about this holistically. Let me put myself in their shoes, whether it's the hospital shoes, what are their motivations, what are their drivers, what do they want out of this, what are their constraints, and then the same thing with Sarepta. And fortunately for Bruce Halpern and myself, Bruce, the, the chief, chief operating officer, co-founder who was driving the R&D program for, for MyoNexus, he and I both had worked at multi-billion dollar companies. So we sort of knew where Sarepta was going. They were kind of like an adolescent company in the big scheme of things. They're not quite Pfizer yet. They're quite, not quite mature, but they're on that trajectory. So we, we knew some of the dynamics of where they were going. So at times we could anticipate where they were going. And we had enough experience with, the with research institutions, hospitals, universities, that we sort of understood the dynamics there. But... That was not for the faint of heart. We were in that in-between position, trying to manage both of those for about a year. It was a challenge. It was, it was pretty tough, required a lot of mental energy, physical energy, a lot of conversations, communications. But fortunately, Sarepta decided to exercise early and save us a year of having to continue to manage both sides of that moving forward. So when they tell you that they're gonna exercise, you know, what emotions are going through your mind after going through that, that back and forth vice for a couple of years and obviously overcoming a lot of challenges along the way? A range of emotions. First, hey, this is, this is pretty, this is cool. This is awesome, happy, let's get this done. And then it's, then it's 
a little bit of paranoia. How fast can we get this done? Because saying goes, time kills deals. So wanted to move quickly. And then what was really interesting for me, and I didn't anticipate it, but I had this moment of almost, I don't know, it wasn't anxiety, but it was, I, I couldn't sleep for a few weeks. And there are some stories about a, a, a certain football coach who's recently retired, very, very successful at a previous university after winning a national title, I, being up all night recruiting. The deal was not even closed. And I was directing the team and I was spending hours trying to find the next asset or two. I was driven to do this again, even before we closed the deal. And I, and it was an interesting, it was an interesting experience where you sort of get locked in as a competitor. You guys with that background, you get locked in. And there's something about the energy and the mental drive to compete. I was out looking for the next one, even before we finished that one. And it almost became an obsession for a few weeks to where I was turning over every rock, looking for the next deal to do in biotech. So that was that was that was an interesting experience. But we fortunately we got it done, got it behind us, and and. I had false expectations that I would have free time and people have utilized that idea that I don't have anything to do to uh, occupy my time in a lot of different ways. So I have to, I tell everybody, I've got to create a job for myself so I can disappear and, and uh, kind of get control over my time again since then. Definitely. Well, I think good place to pivot towards some of the current initiatives you have going on and the other, the other roles. So there's a, there's a few different things you've got working on right now. From Claramedics Armitus to the Innovate Ohio mm-hmm. Gene and Cell Therapy Fund. Can you tell us a little bit about those projects? Yeah, for sure. So Claramedics Biosciences is a it's a company that I am helping nationwide children's and Rev One Ventures launch with Ohio Innovation Fund and another new fund in town, Emerald Shoals. It's a, it's a, it's an anti-infective company, antibacterial technology that is is directed at treating chronic and recurrent or persistent bacterial infections, which are increasingly an issue. And again, leveraging Ohio State's nationwide children's core expertise in microbiology, virology, infectious disease, Lauren Bakelitz and Steve Goodman, two researchers at Nationwide Children's in Ohio State. Lauren is vice president of uh, basic research, I think, for Nationwide Children's. She was just elected to the National Academy of Engineering or microbiology, I should say, a few months ago. Again, thought leaders globally in in their field. They have spent 10 plus years working on a novel approach for attacking what are known as biofilms, these kind of that slime layer that you see in the sink drain when you don't wash it. Well, those same layers, those same structures set up in your body, and that's what drives recurrent infections, hip implant, knee knee replacement, you name it, surgical incis- incisions, hospital-acquired pneumonia, et cetera. And so, so the approach that they have developed attacks that structure that protects the bacteria. So we think this is a really innovative way to go after these chronic and recurrent infections, and we think it's going to make a huge impact uh, moving forward in, in the field of bacterial infection. And then Armitus Bio is, is an attempt 
that I am working with my partners, including Peter Kleinhens, who's a long, long-term venture capitalist mentor of mine who joined with my joined me at my Nexus to, to help transact the deal. As I've shared with a handful of people, my ultimate goal with Armitus is to leverage Columbus's global leadership in gene and cell therapy to hopefully build a multi-billion dollar company in Columbus. I think we need to build a another pillar of the economy here. I think what we're seeing now, uh, some of the challenges we're seeing with some of the certain sectors is an indication that, yes, we need to diversify. My, my central thesis is, given the university's strength, Nationwide Children's, Cardinal Health, Battelle, we have tremendous innovation assets in therapeutics, next generation therapeutics, gene and cell therapy specifically, we historically have not done a good job of capturing the value here. A lot of the value is extracted and taken to the coast. We need to keep it here. I want to create a structure with my team, an investment vehicle that we can create a company that hopefully we can add another tower downtown and have a pharmaceutical or biotech company headquartered in Columbus, Ohio that employs thousands of people and can help become a, a pillar of the community one day. That's a big goal, with, uh, but it makes a lot of sense because, you know, you look at those all those companies you mentioned and, and Nationwide Children's and Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. I mean, it's almost surprising to me that we don't have something like that on the cutting edge of therapeutics or pharmaceuticals at this point. So I think there's there's space for it, and I'm excited to see where it goes. What do you see being your biggest challenges with that? Is that in a five-year plan, a 10-year plan? Do you have a, are you the type of person that lays it out like that? Oh, yeah. I, I, I lay it out, probably try to over, over-engineer it. I think our biggest challenge is we are limited here by how big we think. Columbus, outside of certain pockets, I think we have always thought of ourselves as a, small, as a collection of small towns. And we have the capability. We have the talent. We have all the resources, in my opinion, to, to build multiple companies. So I tell people I'd like to build L Brands or Cardinal Health and, and Nationwide Insurance and Biotech. There's no reason we can't do it. We have this leading institution in Ohio State, Nationwide Children's, and we, we absolutely should. It should be our objective. We should be as dominant in this space as we are in football. So aside from just not thinking big enough, what do you think has been the biggest thing that's stood in our way from making that happen? Has there not been a business-minded, growth-oriented individual pioneering it? To bring it down to a practical level, good question. I think the fundamental challenge that we've had beyond the belief is we haven't had the capital that has had the risk profile to get behind the investment thesis that is biotech or therapeutics. I grew up closer to Pittsburgh, people around Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit, those industrial cities, the, invest, the investment thesis for how people made money there, big factories, whether it's oil, steel, cars, auto, whatever, those took a lot of money up front and had a long break even to make their money back. Columbus has not made its money that way. Columbus has been more software, IT, retail, and there's nothing wrong with it, financial services, but those are different investment theses. And so the risk profile is very different. Biotech, I can show you a deal tomorrow where I need $50 million before I can even have a clue as to whether or not it's going to work. I can theoretically make the argument, yeah, it's going to work, but I need $50 million to 
generate the data to have any reasonable data-based belief that it will work. We haven't had access to the capital locally to place those type of bets. You have had that coalescence or aggregation of capital on the coasts. So we know to do what we want to do, we have made a lot of progress in this space with Rev1 and Ohio Innovation Fund and, like say, Emerald Shoals and others locally. And then regionally, we've made progress, but we still don't have enough to do a Series A biotech deal or Series B with all Ohio money. We have to go to Boston. We have to go to New York. We have to go to San Francisco. And that's okay. I think there's, and that's okay. And I have the relationships and my team, we have the credibility to do that. And we're talking to those people. But I want to take, I want to create, because my goal is to build something here that's permanent with scale. I want to create some anchors or some hooks to Columbus. So I want the original money to be based here. Well, Michael, appreciate the insight into where you're headed and and what you want to do with that. Do you have any advice for our listeners out there? A lot of folks, young professionals, entrepreneurs, people who might want to be entrepreneurs at some point in their lives and mostly in the 25 to 35 range. What do you you think they should be thinking about right now? What, What advice would you give them? Good question. I would say trust yourself. Early on, I thought I, I knew I thought differently than other people. I didn't know if it was because I was crazy or off base, or I thought in a way that was different in a good way from people. And it took some senior leaders, Matt Battelle actually, who encouraged me to say, I had enough evidence. I was starting to build my own database. So yeah, maybe I'm not crazy. I see the world differently. I see opportunities other don't, other people do not see. When you consistently come back to that trust, combine your mind with your gut and that intuition, and don't be afraid to take risk. I was, given, given the background of first-generation college graduate, economically, I was concerned about leaving the big corporate environment because you're sort of out there on your own. You know, it's sink or swim. It's uh, a little bit lonely out there. And, but the reality is, and we're living it now, but it took me a while to realize, you know, even, even in the corporate environment, you're not all that safe. But you know what? If you believe in yourself, you trust in yourself, and you got a good group of people around you, you owe it to yourself. And more importantly, you owe it to everyone around you to go do it and give it a shot. So I'd say go for it. Don't hold back. Give it a shot. Great advice. And Michael, we'll pivot here to our last question of the show, centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? I think it ties into what I just said. I have a lot of my career has been finally getting, whether it's the courage, whether it's just doing it, being comfortable with the uncomfortable and just going there and, and doing it. My natural set point is to probably be an individual contributor. I need my time to think. I need my alone time and living in a city, living in you know, whether it's New Albany or being in a, but leading people, you don't have a lot of time. So constantly stepping forward. And, and when you're feeling very uncomfortable in a, for me, it's a tension of, I know it's time to step forward when I can see the plan. I know what I need to do, but it feels there's a little bit of anxiety. When I get that, it's clear and that anxiety, it's like, okay, now's the time to pull the ripcord. Let's go. And it took me a number of years to get to that recognition of that's the trigger point. And 
you know, my wife can probably tell you I, I get a little irritable maybe at, when I'm approaching that point in time, when I'm wrestling with whatever that is, it becomes clear, but I don't have total confidence. That's the time to go. Perfect. Well, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to tell your story here on Conquering Columbus. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate the opportunity. Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. That was Michael Triplett. If you want to learn more about him or Carmen Partners, check out the links down in the show notes. We appreciate you tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.